0: Hello everyone, my name is Dan Evans. Welcome to A Nation of Shopkeepers, The Rise of the Petty Bourgeoisie. A series of podcasts dedicated to exploring social class and the petty bourgeoisie in particular. This is episode two. I hope you liked the first one. It's since emerged that I had COVID when I was recording it, so any mistakes or issues can be attributed to that. Episode one obviously didn't have a name, but now I think I've settled on one after a largely fruitless attempt to at crowdsource one on Twitter. The termination of shopkeepers is a phrase that has been widely used to describe the UK. It's commonly associated with Margaret Thatcher, herself a greengrocer's daughter, but apparently it originates with Napoleon uh, or maybe even Adam Smith. I was going to go for live, laugh, love, but one, I don't want this to be just making fun of people, and two, I don't want class to be reduced to just talking about aesthetics and home interiors. However, when my book on the petty bourgeoisie finally comes out, the cover will be in crushed grey velvet. So. While the podcast is on the Petty Bourgeoisie, the first episodes in the series are going to be about social class per se, because I really think we need to overhaul our understanding of class on the British left. In this episode, you'll be glad to know I'm going to be joined by a guest, the wonderfully talented Rian E. Jones, author of numerous fantastic books. Of particular relevance to this series is about clampdown pop cultural wars on class and gender and we'll shortly be discussing Blairism, the intersection of gender and class and the discursive construction and reproduction of class within popular culture. First however, I want to briefly mention some interesting articles that have come to light since I recorded and released episode one. So first up we have Sam Friedman in The Guardian. Why do so many professional middle class Brits insist their work in class? This was a remarkable piece based on findings in the British Social Attitude Survey and subsequent research by Friedman at LSE that showed a mass disidentification by middle class people with their objective social class. Instead, they largely tended to see themselves and identify as working class. He writes that Britain certainly has an unusual attachment to working class identities. While in most Western countries people tend to identify as middle class, Britain has long been an intriguing outlier. According to the British Social Attitude Survey, 47% 47% of Britons in middle-class professional and managerial jobs identify as working class. Even more curiously, a quarter of people in such jobs who come from middle-class backgrounds, in the sense that their parents did professional work, also identify as working class. So this article supported the themes I explored in episode one, you know, about the chaotic nature of our understanding of class in the UK. Now as a concept, it's become detached from people's economic relationship to capital or the place in the social structure, and in many ways it's just become an identity. So why do people in the UK do this? Friedman argues that these intergenerational understandings of class origin should be read as having a performative dimension. They deflect attention away from the structural privileges these individuals enjoy, both in their own eyes, but also among those, they communicate their origin stories to in everyday life. At the same time, by framing their lives as an upward struggle against the odds, these interviewees misrepresent their subsequent life outcomes as more worthy, more deserving and more meritorious. So this is very similar to Joe Kennedy's worth and autocracy discussed in the previous episode, although this is sort of it on an individual scale. People justifying their own privilege by telling themselves a reassuring story or, or lie, basically, about their own humble origins. The article really demonstrates the urgent need to better understand what class is. It's an economic, social and cultural relationship. Hopefully, Sam Friedman will be coming on this series in one of the later episodes. Moving abroad. The class character of the Capitol Hill rioters in Washington, D.C. has been widely remarked upon. In particular, the respectable nature of the people arrested and the prevalence of small business owners among them. According to a University of Chicago study, in the Capitol attack, business owners and white-collar workers made up to 40% of the people accused of taking part. An article for The Atlantic entitled The Capitol Rioters Weren't Low Class, Adam Sirwa stated that the business owners, real estate brokers, and service members who rioted acted not out of economic desperation but out of their belief in their inv- inviolable inviolable in inviolable 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 right to rule i don't even know how <laughs> to pronounce that word the article states that respectable people are dangerous and points to the prevalence of respectable upstanding citizens in the kkk for example to recall of course in the first episode i spoke about the petty bourgeoisie's belief that they are the backbone of the state and their tendency towards fetishizing the state and authority However, it isn't just as simple as calling the right as middle class or respectable. And as I argued previously, these categories, I think, are normally quite unhelpful. There was a more nuanced article in the Washington Post by Todd Frankel, which explored the precarious economic situation of the rioters. So according to Frankel, nearly 60% of the people facing charges related to the capital riot showed signs of prior money troubles, including bankruptcies, notices of eviction or foreclosure, bad debts or unpaid taxes over the past two decades. The group's bankruptcy rate, 18%, was nearly twice as high as that of the American public. A quarter of them had been sued for money owed to a creditor, and one in five of them faced losing their home at one point. So whilst these people were certainly outwardly respectable, for example, small business owners and had few criminal convictions, they were also deeply precarious. And this is entirely consistent with Pulantzas's analysis of the petty bourgeoisie and subsequent empirical ethnographic work into petty bourgeoisie communities, which found them to be a class which was made hard and aggressive precisely because of the precarious, tough and isolated nature of the work and the fact that they were constantly treading water. Gramsci's work on fascism in Italy, which was later echoed by Trotsky and Polansas, focused on the petty bourgeois class basis of fascism and essentially argued that fascism was how this class reacts when they felt like they were at risk of becoming proletarianised and when their state seems to be at risk of collapsing into disorder. I'll have to do an episode on the petty bourgeoisie and fascism as part of the series, And my expertise in this will inevitably launch my career in America. Ultimately, all these articles reinforce my belief that we need to keep talking about and investigating the petty bourgeoisie. And that this topic and this series is very important. So, you know, in films like on Citizen Kane, when you see the newspapers spinning towards the screen with the different front pages on them. So I want you to imagine that's happening now. And the same things like Evans does it again. Podcast on petty bourgeoisie, another triumph for Evans. Podcast King Evans turns attention to petty bourgeoisie and so on. Anyway, you get the picture. Enough of me. Now we're going to talk to Ryan. <laughs> Welcome, Ryan. How are you doing?
1: Hi, Dan. Nice to, nice to be here. I am Corbin. <laughs> Hope you well, too.
0: Yeah, sort of... Uh, I think this lockdown has been the... This has been the hardest one, I think. I don't know if it's because we were all sort of hoping over Christmas that it would immediately get better. I don't know. It's been... um. Yeah, the, pr-
1: the promise of the new year has sort of dissipated yeah. by now, I think, hasn't it? Everyone's like, yeah. we're, ne- we're never getting out of the house. No,
0: <laughs> yeah, immediately. It's sort of like, OK, let's write this year off as well. Um, it's, <laughs> but yes, it's, it's been it's been a tough one. Um, But like I know hopefully there's green shoots on the horizon. I remember seeing mm. a tweet the other day and it was like it might amaze you to know that like there's nothing wrong with being like relentlessly optimistic about the future. Because there's, <laughs> there's kind of been and i was probably guilty of it myself doing like the first like wave is it? almost like a perverse like drive to sort of w- almost want this to never end to like own mm. the Tories the mad drive on people on the left to like lock down the borders immediately without thinking about the, the implications of that and so on I don't know it's uh yeah no,
1: this is a weird form of accelerationism to it is acceleration still even a thing like if they, yeah well, yeah left accelerationist.
0: but hopefully we will we will overcome um Obviously, you know you've written you know, many fantastic articles and books, and we'll talk about some of them, uh, especially the forthcoming one at the end of the pod. I mean, today, I mean, as I said in the first episode, if we are to understand like the role of the petty bourgeoisie in the UK and its expansion, the expansion of petty bourgeois ideology, I think you know the first step is to is to understand social class, you know, per se in the UK. And your book clamp down, you know, pop cultural wars on class and gender is a really exceptional analysis, I think, of class, gender, and, like, the reproduction of class and class stigma through popular culture, mm-hmm. particularly music. And, you know, it's not just something that should be read for people wanting to understand like the pet bourgeoisie. Z. I think it's something that is a book that should be widely read that anyone wants to understand, you know, those things, period. It, it, you know, it's a really, just, yeah. a really excellent, like, analysis. It also contains some um, home truths about my beloved oasis and, like, Um, like the Mannix so yeah a really fantastic book um and there are a number of themes in the book I think which are extremely important why don't we start with the idea of Chavs or the you know the the folk demon of the Chav which seemed to be like the motif of of the 90s Mm
1: -hmm. um yeah I mean this book came out two years I think after Owen Jones's uh book Chavs which was the point at which I think the left started to um to think about these things um this this book kind of functions as a critique of owen's book and yeah. that's like one one big theme of it is that um like owen's point was that chav in the 2000s had developed this very particular politicized meaning mm-hmm. um that it was being given by mainstream politicians and media commentators um and that was the sort of like, almost the, the dangerous part of the working class a sort of modernized version of like the lumpen proletariat, yeah. um sort of very uneducated like that was a very distinct signifier of it not educated semi-criminal um sexually promiscuous just like sort of reproducing all over the place with all kinds of men
0: like the same class <laughs> <isn't it? laughs>
1: the thing like yeah i th- I like this was one of the things that struck me at the time was this almost exactly the sort of thing that was said about the working class in the victorian era like yeah. exactly the same tropes like they have no interest in education they don't yeah. want to improve themselves you know they um yeah and and they're just having uh, loads and loads of kids unstoppably um so that i mean that as a historian like that interested me um because one of the the tropes that it reproduces is the idea of the rough versus the respectable working class which i i think when that divide first became a thing was in the late 19th century um it's so a guy called um, Charles Booth who did um, basically maps of London that was yeah. um, color coded according to like socioeconomic difference, um, and it was like it was very taxonomic. Like there's about ten different categories that he puts all these streets into, from like Kensington and Mayfair yeah. down to like the the slums um, of parts of East London. Um, but part of that division was um, dividing the working class streets into rough and respectable. Um, which was often I mean a that sort of shaped how people outside the working class saw them but you could also see the see the working class sort of assimilate that as well and start to view themselves in terms of rough and respectable so that those sort of interclass gradations come into play in the late 1800s um, one of the things that you notice about these sort of Victorian designations Of rough and respectable is that they're based on um not so much on like income or occupational status but on like vague impressions that these people give and like stereotypical thinking so like for example you might see a street that's got loads of broken windows um kids playing in the in the gutter etc and you think oh this is a rough area rather than thinking this is obviously like a a landlord problem like why why is it up to these people to repair the windows like why Mm -hmm. why is Why has their landlord shoved loads of different families into a building that is too small for them, etc.? Oh, and the kids are playing in the gutter. Like, well, where else are they meant to play? You know, they can't play indoors. There's no like public parks, etc. So the the essence of roughness is um, something that's externally imposed and often something Mm -hmm. that's not innate to a person. And it can change very quickly if you you move into a slightly nicer house or a a nicer street, etc., so, yeah, rough and respectable divides, always very arbitrary, but with a lot of traction, like both within the working class and outside it. Um, you can trace this. The, the quote that Clampdown starts off with is from um, Richard Hoggart in 1957, who wrote the, the uses of literacy sort of about his his own memories of working class culture. And it's a very interesting book, but he does talk about um, different voices that girls have. And he says that there's one that's known among the more respectable working classes as a common voice, and this is the voice of working class girls of the rougher sort. So you can see these Victorian yeah yeah designations being reproduced um, decades later, um, and they ha- they haven't they haven't gone away, and they get like massively turbocharged and repurposed just after the, the 90s, I think, which is what Owen identifies in Chavs. I found it. To talk about the term chav itself like the fact that it didn't always mean the politicized meaning that it had like it's it's a term that has um be wankier and say it's it's a multivalent signifier you know like it means <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> means different things to different people like when when you think about how i don't know vicky Pollard or something when, when you think about how yeah. that sort of hate figure or folk yeah. demon is is used you know what chav means in that case but it's meant different things to different gradations of working class people in different regions etc and that was his point it's a term that's used by a political class to flatten all these gradations um lump everyone in together so a denying the variety of working class identity and experience and b saying that we're all chavs therefore we're all uneducated criminals who need to be subject to social discipline and uh, and policing so this annoyed me for for many reasons and the (laughs) book is kind of of an attempt to unpick yeah. um, unpick all of that I mean one thing that it critiques is that chav also tends to be used against women much more than than men, but also like the fact that the word the word changed even from when I became aware of it because I used to know I used to know it as um as meaning like sort of nouveau riche. Yeah, like the classic people, like the the Beckhams. Remember when the, uh, yeah, the Beckhams yeah. got married and they were sitting on like golden thrones?
0: Yeah, it was like a it was like a chic. I mean, there was an element of like the, yeah, upward. I mean, the, the I've sort of known it as you said it in multiple ways, and one of them was certainly. I mean, who was the um? Do you remember the Lotto Lout? Um. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was it, something <laughs> Carol? You know the guy who like you know was. Was like a repeat offender, like football hooligan who looking won like a million pound, and then like obviously spent it on like air rifles and like gold chains <laughs> and stuff like that. But but yeah, like the Beckhams and, and like how, your know, Burberry became like I don't know. It, it, yeah, it was it was kind of synonymous with the nouveau reach and like conspicuous consumption for a while, mm. as well as this idea of like you know the the almost like the lumpen element of the working class.
1: I find it yeah. interesting how like what is. I think we'll probably talk later about the idea of class just being reduced to a set of signifiers. But, you know, yeah. if if a Burberry scarf is also just like a, a free floating signifier, why is it wrong for a working class person to adopt that? Yeah. You know, because they do adopt it in a, an aspirational way. Like this is this is conspicuous yeah. consumption. So yeah. why is that vulgar and, and unacceptable? Whereas rich kids dressing as their idea of working class people, you know, is all a bit of fun. Like it's interesting yeah. to see yeah. how these uh, double standards apply.
0: I mean, the, the concept of the chav, I think, you know, if we're looking at your historical overview, I think is really important because if you look at the broad sweep of the of the concept of the chav, is like, you know, it's a continuation of, you know, the, the systematic demonization or the discursive demonization of the working class, um, which has always happened. But like I'm particularly interested because you know, if we're talking about the petty bourgeoisie, Thatcher, as, I've, as I spoke about in the last episode, one of the, the core traits of Thatcherism was to peel off you know, a layer of the working class and make them petty bourgeoisie through you know acquisition of property. In order to do that, you need a folk devil. You need to like discursively mm-hmm. construct the idea of a scrounging working class or a lazy working class. So the flip side of creating uh, the petty, mm-hmm. new petty bourgeoisie is to create this idea of an underclass, which people imaginary underclass, which people define themselves against. But yeah, like what I what I was struck by in your book and when I read Chav's myself in when I was doing my PhD was the problem with the left's take on the child discourse at the time was it replaces one cardboard cutout analysis of the working class as all sort of being deranged sort of loudish criminals with kind of like another cardboard cutout that everyone is like extremely virtuous and almost with like a ha- like a hagiography uh, idea of the working classes like you know these close knit communities and so on. But what your book does and as well as like well, a lot of you know other Marxists say is that you know there's always been diversity within the working class. There have always been mm-hmm. class fractions within the proletariat, and there's always been, in particular, a divide between the respectable and the rough. And like as you note in the book, I mean the the ways I first began to start thinking about you know how post call was different or how the petty bourgeois were different was when I read Chav's in I think 2011, and I didn't personally recognize the idea of, you know, because obviously it's talking about middle-class people in London, journalists, like making fun of like the underclass and chavs. Whereas obviously the people who I knew who were most aggressively defining themselves against chavs were people who would be considered to be chavs or the working class themselves. Mm. It was the people that it was the people who was defining themselves against this idea of roughness were people who were, you know, either the, fractions of the petty bourgeoisie or respectable working class and I think that is was completely lost in that debate and there's something that that's the theme of your book isn't it to mm. to show well one of the one of the one of the many themes I think is to show that there is always this, there's this diversity within the working class one of the things that in terms of as, as we continue to excavate the notion of class I mean the, the idea of intersectionality is a is a bit of a buzzword these days and it's thrown mm. around and so on but I mean this book is like a A perfect example of what intersectionality is you know it's this idea that you know you can't talk about the working class without speaking about the the disproportionate uh, effects of austerity and class you know the demonization of the working class on women
1: Mm. yeah i mean i think a lot of people missed the the sexism that is tied up in anti-chav discourse um which to me is impossible to miss because so many of like the the hate figures that were created to draw on this um were female um and i'm saying the idea of like sexual availability sexual um precociousness um is tied up in it as well and the i mean the idea of the single mother which got pulled into it's a a slightly different the single mother is a slightly different folk demon but it kind of got brought into the yeah the chav discourse as well because the common thread being that oh these people are living off the state they don't um You know, they're, they're not earning uh, their own money. They're not contributing to the economy, etc. They're simply a, a drain on the system. And I think something that um, was an aspect of that was the idea if it's a woman doing this, she's also in some way like defying capitalist patriarchy. She's not um, supplying reproductive and emotional labor for a man so that he can contribute to the economy. So all of all of that was tied up with it as well something that used to annoy me going back to the 90s was the um an aspect of riot girl which was though so i i had some sort of interest in it and some sympathy for it it was very much a middle class movement um very much centered around like us colleges or brighton sort of middle class uh, left wing enclaves like that um and a lot of it was about somehow reclaiming um female sexuality um which which they do by sort of, you know, being a bad girl and, and arguing that it was it was empowering to um take up burlesque or, or something like that. Um which to me like very very harshly clarified the difference between working class female sexuality and middle class female sexuality because reclaiming the idea of, you know, being easy, being sexually available not, not really an option for working class girls. Everyone thinks we're up for it all the time. I mean, one of the the themes of the book is what happens to um, the portrayal of gender in pop culture throughout the 90s and how that relates to class. Um, Because in in addition to the sort of the the middle class riot girl portrayals of femininity, like I've got a whole chapter on Kinnicky, who are just one of the... I think everyone kind of knows about them now because Lauren Laverne is like a a mainstream figure. I only know about
0: them because I think Dan Howden mentioned them and they're from Sunderland.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean they were they were very obscure in the 90s, but they were also one of the the only proponents of a, a particular kind of and again like there's, there's gradations here because I I don't think I think like some of them were working class occupationally as in they, their dad was was a welder, um some of them weren't, um so I don't want to be like they were a hardcore working class band, but they <coughs> did portray a particular class inflected and also regionally inflected like a, a very northern. Kind of femininity, which was um, fantastically brash, kind of aggressive, like a lot of leopard print, a lot of high heels, lashes of makeup, etc. And they in a lot of their songs, like they really captured the idea of the big night out. Yeah which is kind of a theme throughout the book like the yeah. the trope within working class culture of just having a massive one. Yeah yeah. You know and again, getting incredibly dressed up for it like perfect makeup spending all day getting your hair done doing your nails etc. Um it's fabulous and it's a it's a particular part of what I knew growing up that I just I just don't see around very much and I don't see very
0: no, awareness
1: of it but it's something that is, is really dear to my heart maybe particularly under lockdown like the idea of, of having a big night out is just like almost sacred to me now
0: well clothes and aesthetics and being glam is one of the I mean one of the ways I've got an affinity with like football culture I think but like you know if you look at British youth culture and British working class youth culture you know clothes and looking good and dressed mm-hmm. sharply has been absolutely like central to it and that's why you know going to uni and I know I'm not going to demonize certain places, but going to places like Bristol, um, it's funny because obviously, like, in middle class people dress like absolute scruff bags and they don't make an effort. I mean, there was that incident, wasn't it? I can't remember her name, but she was like, she's like a middle class music artist and she got turned away from this, like, posh restaurant for oh, yeah, dressing, yeah. you know, in, like, you know, jogging bottoms or whatever. And there was this outcry, like, oh, this is like snobbishness on behalf of, like, the establishment. But I was like, okay, yeah, on the one hand, it is. But also, I was like, if you think, like, any. Working class person would turn up to a meal dressed in <laughs> jogging bottoms or something. Then like you are living in a parallel universe. You know, like the, the,
1: yeah,
0: there's no one that makes more of an effort than you know the working class people in terms of like dressing glamorously and as I said going on big nights out and, and and look and looking good and taking pride in in what they wear. That's just one of the. if you, if you look at photos of people. Who worked, you know, the miners on a weekend, or miners coming out of both coal for the miners fortnight. You know, everyone wears mm. their best clothes because if you oh, work, everyone's
1: got a hat on. Yeah, and
0: That's if like you, it's
1: extraordinary. If, if you
0: work in a pit, the majority of your life, like on your, and then you're covered in coldest or something like that. Like maybe on your your days off, you want to you want to feel nice and, 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 and wear nice things and stuff. And yeah,
1: I think there's yeah. two sides to it, and the the one is definitely just the the, the old idea of defining the rough from the respectable. Like you mm. you dress respectably with the idea of your sunday best like so yeah that's exactly yeah the clothes you wear to chapel and it's yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, your respectable clothes um but also yeah working class life is so grim and so so grinding so you've got to have a big night out as just as like a psychological
0: yeah release break, valve yeah. you
1: know
0: yeah exactly it's um yeah if you you know you d- you drink or go out and on the piss or whatever mm. because it's like because you actually psychologically need to like you need yeah. to sort of uh Unwind. I mean, that. I mean, it's in you know, it's in angles, isn't it? In the condition of, the, or mm. uh, you know, the condition of English working class. You know, people just go out and get drunk and and party yeah. because they they are living in extreme, <laughs> extremely difficult conditions. And I've waylaid you again here. Sorry. That's uh, um, <laughs> right. So you're, t- you're talking about Kaneki and the, the idea of working class family. F- oh yeah, but.
1: just the very um whatever their class origins were. Um, a similar thing with like Blur and Oasis, e- even if blur weren't like quintessentially middle-class oasis were not quintessentially working class but it was about their presentation and what um what meanings people inscribed onto their presentation so similarly with Kiniki, they they presented a certain kind of working class femininity um which most of like the middle class music journalists weren't quite sure what to do with and this this was massively complicated by the fact that they were also all like really clever really witty and really intelligent and the interviews what full full of like really good things. But you you could sense this sort of, well, you know, they're they're very interesting and they're very clever, but they, you know, they're they're dressed in quite a vulgar way. How do we put these two things together? And there's a yes, yeah, incident which which I address in the book where someone asks them and again, like I, I think this is a this is a really this is a thing that just encapsulates so much of the nineties. So the the Viz um comic strip, The Fat Slags. <laughs> Which is
0: about
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, yeah clue clue is in the name basically um but they're also from um Sunderland
0: yeah
1: so they possibly Newcastle so this this middle class so interviewer just so goes to
0: from Newcastle
1: as well so yeah the, so Knicky just gets asked like oh are you so you're a bit like the fat slags like only thinner <sighs> which is just so fucking insulting and uh, I think it's Lauren Laverne who responds with like the fat slags only thinner so what you're asking is are we slags. Like uh, the the idea that a group that didn't present as working class women would get asked that, and yeah. the the fact that yeah, it's, it's such a reductive idea of what what a musical artist you know is is doing to just present it, don't yeah, reduce, reduce it to oh well you know dress like a slag. So yeah, um, and that was that was late 90s. This was like almost preempting some of the Chav discourse, but you can see it all foreshadowed in there. And like yeah, so it's all. Chávez is to me a really obvious example of where intersectionality is obvious because it's about class relating to gender.
0: Yeah.
1: And you get you get very obvious sexism, very obvious class hatred.
0: Yeah.
1: All rolled up together in this this folk demon figure.
0: Well, I think one of the the key points of the book is how you know pop culture serves to uh, certainly at one at one level it can reproduce class reproduce class divides. And one of the reasons I think we've got these clunky uh, and sort of basically unhelpful ideas of class is because of the perpetuation of stereotypes about class. And, you know, you pinpoint Britpop as one of the examples of how class stereotypes become more entrenched and more sort of one dimensional in mm-hmm. pop culture during the 90s. Like so, you, know, you, you you talk about like the manufactured rivalry between Oasis and Blur examples of these sort of cut out cardboard cut-out versions. So, you know, you have Blur taken as the foppish middle-class art school mm-hmm. graduates versus, like, Oasis who are, like, vulgar, like, violent, sort of thick, like, aggressive, like, working-class people. Neither of those were true of, of the bands either. But, like, you know, one of the reasons for the perpetuation of these stereotypes was, I guess, related to, like, material reasons in the in the fact that you you see during this period the progressive exclusion of working-class people Mm. From the cultural apparatus, also you know the, these stereotypes and perpetuations of not just the the chav, but you know of working class people, of middle of you know what is working class and what is middle class are perpetuated by journalists and politicians who you know, had elite educations and and mm. very little, a very limited life experience.
1: Yeah, something that was very odd about everything that surrounded the yeah the, the manufactured Blair and Oasis war is that you could see the extent to which working class identity was had become something cool something aspirational yeah so within within the music press you'd have oasis presented as really cool because they could be presented in a working class way um against yeah blur who you know bless them would you just castigated as like middle class bookish sort of i I don't think anyone like used the word puff or whatever but you could you could see that under that's
0: subtext well, no, Gallagher, yeah. Gallagher actually did say it, didn't he? I mean, he actually yeah, said one yeah. of the, I won't say what he said, but he basically said it explicitly about one of the, the Blur members.
1: Yeah, which like, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but like basically, <laughs> I mean, it, for one thing, it erases the fact that, you know, there's loads of working class gay people, for one yeah. thing. And also the, the fact that like a a lot of what, a lot of how Blur were presented as middle class was that they they read I think there were interviews where they were sort of talking about like Andre Gide, um, various other other stuff, and you, you could see people expecting the takeaway to be, oh, what a bunch of puffs reading books, yeah. you know, like so, so that's. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea that only middle class people read books, um, yeah. was a massive erasure of again, I bang on about this a lot, but the whole tradition of working class self education. Yeah. also didact the fact that we had like miners libraries that yeah, exactly. the communities built themselves in the victorian age would in class people read um so it was all incredibly offensive and yet you could you could see it all gaining ground to the, to the point where i think it may have been the mail actually when the this this war came to a head and it was um oh yeah it was blur's single country house that got to number one London. ahead of the oasis one and the the headline was like oh the the pop victory that makes it cool to be middle class uh, something so just like there's oh there's so much that's wrong here but like where would you even start basically yeah. what the book tries to do just unpick un- un- all of all of that weird stuff
0: alex james like since he's left blur sort of like confirmed all this all the suspicions <laughs> that people had, all, all the sort of uh the, the weird things that people were saying about blur he's like single-handedly gone yeah like actually that was yeah it's all true you said there about the, the idea that only middle class people read and how you know the book talks about working class autodidacts and, and how yeah there is it's obviously a huge tradition of working class self education, and, and you use the Manics, for example, as as one. Yeah. Well, yeah. the Manics are an example of a band which like completely subverted these very black and white binaries between this is working class culture, this is middle class culture, these are working class aesthetics, these are middle class aesthetics, and so mm. on. And they didn't fit into it. We can talk about that. Well, we talk about the Manics all day. But I spoke in the in the in the previous podcast about you know the the roots of the. The new petty bourgeoisie and its expansion has its roots in Thatcherism for me, you know, like the idea, especially things like right to buy. And obviously Thatcherism is associated with very crude, very brash idea of social mobility, creating a new petty bourgeoisie, you know, encouraging working class people to buy their own houses. You know, the idea of Essex man as a as a stereotype is this very brash idea of like open, I am petty bourgeoisie, I've got money now. Blairism is traditionally, or I've certainly seen Blairism as like a seamless continuity between Blairism and Thatcherism. One of the, I think, amazing things about your book is it's one of the only books that talks about majorism uh, or the experience of, you know, late Thatcherism as kind of this weird period of decay. I can't think of many books that have really spoken about the 90s, you know, because the 90s wasn't just optimism and Britpop and Cool Britannia and stuff like that. It was was almost the bleak elements of the 80s Mm-hmm. you know sort of dragged out and you said it's almost like this zombie like existence and it's like corrupt useless party that just like refuses <laughs> refused to die and so yeah. i thought you know that was really fascinating because of, there wasn't like a seamless segue between thatcherism and blairism as mm-hmm. i you know i've certainly sort of assumed um and others have written i don't know what majorism is but one of the things i think is interesting is you know, Blairism, I think, definitely does continue the reproduction of social mobility, and I think I'll talk about it later. As I think Blairism is an example of like it's not petty bourgeois socialism because Blairism obviously wasn't socialism, but it's an example of how your know, petty bourgeois aspiration sort of blends with socialism to sort of destroy it essentially. Yeah, if, if Thatcherism is this idea of rapid upward social mobility, as you said in Blairism, you've got middle class men cosplaying as being working class, like mm-hmm. in the so you've got like the new lad thing associ- associated with with loaded, privately educated journalists like fetishizing Liam Gallagher and, you know, pretending to like football and stuff like that. And, and the interesting thing is, as you said, it, during this period, working class-ness or at least a crude idea of working class, what the working class is and working class aesthetics becomes cool. And that was something that kind of, when I read it, was kind of like, OK, this is, this is really interesting and I agree with it but it almost messed up my analysis of, like, Thatcherism and Blairism. So I was like, oh, no. But we discussed this earlier, you know, because um, you know, I was trying to come to terms with it. And I think what you mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but what the book suggests about Blairism, what Blairism was as a cultural phenomenon, you know, obviously Britpop was, like, almost a like cultural adjunct mm-hmm. to Blairism. It was a central part of this, the discourse of, of Blairism. So if Blairism is, like, a flat, basically represents a flattening of class differences, You know, whereas Thatcherism is peeling off a section of the working class to become petty bourgeoisie, Blairism, discursively at least, represents this idea that everyone is now middle class, like everyone is now aspirational rather than just a small section of it. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then if everyone is now middle class, then class can be easily reduced merely to a set of aesthetics. So it's fine then for like the sort of middle class journalists to say, you know, to pretend to be, Working class, or to pretend to be like Liam Gallagher, or to pretend to like football and stuff like that. Because if everyone's middle class, then class is just becomes a set of signifiers, and there is, you know, there is no poverty and stuff like that. And, and the mm-hmm. sense of optimism surrounding New Labour sort of allowed that to happen.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much entirely um the argument I make in the book. I think, um, as you were saying earlier, like Thatcherism, because it paid a huge amount of attention to class differences and social mobility as part of this hegemonic project and because it was intent on through things like buying your own council house peeling off sections of, of the working class because of that it needed the working class to still exist yeah
0: like absolutely. It, ne- it needed an other yeah definitely. against
1: which upwardly mobile Essex boys etc could define themselves I think what happened with blair and we, I'll come back to to majorism as a sort of interregnum in a second but with blair I think because they took it as read that all that work had been done, aspiration had worked, everyone had somehow aspired their way out of the working class. So therefore they didn't need to figure in political discourse or policy and they could get on with sort of collective aspiration. So the country would continue to get better. It would become um, ever more progressive, etc. So there was no attention paid at all to this very significant layer that hadn't done well under Thatcherism and under majorism Again, which we just sort of forgotten about, in fact, exacerbated, like he's often forgotten because we think of Major as, as just like kind of harmless and just like a, a bit of a schmuck. And we feel a bit sorry for him. Um, but his government actually, you know, uh, privatised the railways. Yeah. Um, they had the second big round of pit closures in 92. There was the criminal justice bill, which did really bizarre things. I, I struggle to explain to like the kids that there was actually government legislation that banned music characterised by repetitive beats. Yeah. Like that couldn't be listened to in public. Um, that yeah. was all under Major. So it was it was a really kind of very softly authoritarian.
0: Well, in the same uh, way, people are trying to re- rehabilitate in Theresa May, because just because she was a bit mm. used as a the person. They forget about the hostile environment, I think. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. And the idea, like I think one of the, the big differences that also propelled new Labour into power was that Major was all about like his vision for the country was very much pre-60s. Like he gave that appalling Actually, a rip-off of, of George Orwell, but that, that speech about um, my vision of Britain is like cricket on the village green, flat pints, all, all women bicycling to, to church, etc. Whereas Blair's offer was all about returning to the 60s. And so much of like Cool Britannia was about the 60s, Redax, like sort of swinging London. Yeah, um, yeah. And the new, like exporting British music, like the new British invasion, that kind of thing. So the, the weird battle that's characterised British politics with the The gains of the 60s versus the 60s were awful let's go back to the 50s or or even even beyond is some something that really was quite extreme in in new labor i think and i think because we thought we'd we'd won that battle like we're going to live in a young progressive modern country now everything's in technicolor rather than the really horrible monochrome that that characterized the major administration yeah that's that sort of very i was blissful that that kind of hedonism characterised early Blairism, the fact that, you know, everything's fine now. You can yeah. you can rest easy, forget about things. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think the end of the Cold War obviously plays into that as well. The idea that this is, this is the end of history now. Um
0: is it. Liberal
1: tri- triumphalism is,
0: yeah, yeah. this is
1: it. There's, there's nothing, nothing more is going to happen, which was, yeah, w- was extremely odd to grow up, like being very definitely working class and post-industrial working class at that, like from a mining community. Um I remember growing up in the valleys and hearing we're all middle class now and thinking well okay it's on the news so i guess it's true yeah. but then how does that explain my lived experience the fact that the high street has got like one shop on it that isn't boarded up yeah. um and there's only three buses a day like all of this kind of thing very bizarre but yeah there was no as we've been saying like there was just no attention paid to that layer of and i don't, I don't really like the term the left behind yeah working class but like what what has now come to be rediscovered after like brexit and after um the red the red wall yeah, collapse and like, all all of that stuff um which is weird in itself because like what's been what's been rediscovered there is a is a older as in like demographically an older yeah. working class that is considered very respectable like i'm sure would would consider itself respectable like retired retired yeah, yeah. pensioners this kind of thing it's very different from like the chav stereotype which, which I think was like almost a wholly imagined working class, but that, that sort of took hold for a good 10 or 15 years, but it, it had no purchase in reality. Meanwhile, the actual working class, in all, in all its variety, was just um, completely absent from political discourse until the, these huge disasters happened in the past um, five or six
0: years. One of the fascinating things for me about, about Brexit and people who've been radicalised by Brexit, and I'm not going to turn my my new solo podcast into a rant about like the EU or remainers if you want that you can listen to my other one. Is there almost like the the discovery of the political class or like a lot of people in this country that the working class exists. You know, as a as a thing. It's like, oh my God, wait, wait, there's huge swathes of the of the UK which are like immiserated. And one of the interesting things about Blairism, not just with regards to the petty bourgeoisie or the you know the class structure of the UK, but in terms of how you know, class is reproduced or understood, you know, in some ways through popular culture is like as you said, this idea that we're all middle class now and the reduction of class in Blairism to a set of aesthetics almost meant for like an entire decade. And let's face it, continuing with Cameronism, Mm -hmm. the working class and you know, the material realities and the idea of a class divide between the working class and and everyone else was just completely well, it just didn't exist. It just wasn't Mm. it just didn't seem to feature anywhere. Rather than in negative ter- stereotypes. And then there's only now with Brexit that this like, I mean, like, as you said, in the 80s, we had, like, class struggle. There was, mm-hmm. obvious work, it was an obvious working class. There was a militant working class. There was a trade union movement and a labour movement. And obviously with a blending of the labour movement with capital, like, so obviously mm-hmm. under Blair and, like, the, the professionalisation of politics. And I don't know, the working class as a political force has d- disappeared, obviously. Mm-hmm. I don't know, also in pop culture, it disappeared and was replaced instead by as you said these 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 crude sort of stereotypes and that's that's one of the features of blairism i think
1: yeah something that i I realize i haven't mentioned but it does there is a lot about it in the book is yeah the the disappearance of the working class as a a cultural force like as well as an economic and political force which you kind of see it isn't quite happening in the 90s because you still get this this weird sort of tussle where you'll you'll get like working class artists weirdly like appearing in uh, in the charts and you will have stuff like the criminal justice bill protests and that kind of yeah. thing um but in the 2000s like the fact that um you, basically like you needed either you needed your dad to know someone else's dad to get a job in the cultural industry or you needed to be able to work an unpaid internship just completely squeezes the life out of working class access to yeah, cultural production and no one no one really noticed or gave a shit i like, guess someone who spent like most of the 2000s like Try, trying to sort of break into the the cultural industry but like also needing yeah. to know where next month's rent was coming from so I couldn't yeah. be an intern or whatever yeah and I, I think it was only in maybe the early 2010s when suddenly there were all the all these articles about like why why are all British actors so posh
0: yeah
1: like I mean they're not not just posh why are they all aristocrats
0: yeah and the band
1: <laughs> 20 years and like no one
0: had, uh, no one had noticed. Yeah, as long as there's like a salve for the country mm. with plaster over a bullet wound or whatever, just like, yeah, it doesn't, class antagonism don't exist. Everyone is middle class now. I mean, I've been trying to think about how this necessarily relates to the petty bourgeoisie and the divide between petty bourgeoisie and the working class or the divide between petty bourgeoisie and the middle class. One of the things I've taken from your book and our discussion today is that, you know, you obviously cannot just use aesthetics to define class social class i mean if you use aesthetics as a fine social class you end up with well stereotype views of things like chavs or oasis versus blur and stuff like that and and blairism is like the start of this reduction of class to a set of consumption practices and aesthetics because material class differences were felt to be Mm. disappeared class was it was okay to just reduce class then to a set of um aesthetics like like you said for example there was the university societies doing the chav nights Mm. obviously is abhorrent on the one hand but on the other hand people could do it because precisely because they thought that those Mm. people didn't exist if if you do just use aesthetics and consumption to define class you know that means that you will for example you'd end up lumping the respectable working classes in with a petty bourgeoisie because they're house proud, for example, or because mm. that shows that you you have to look at people's economic relationship to capital, their social function in the class structure. i.e., like what type of job do they do? What 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 is their job? Like vis a vis the rest of the working class, you know what is their what is their politics and so on. You have to look at the class in a in a holistic way to understand mm. these things. And thinking about Blairism as well as I mean, in the last episode I mentioned, you know how Polansas and and others talked about petty bourgeois socialism as like a a sort of a deviation and how we've got to where we are in this country and uh, how our understanding of class is so bad. I don't want to, I can't call New Labour socialism, I can't call Blairism socialism at all. If you look at some of the the defining characteristics of what Marxists talk about, petty bourgeois ideology, it's the idea of aspiration, Um, it's the idea of Mm. not changing the system about levelling the playing field to allow social mobility. If you look at like Blairism, new labor economic policies, it's just defined by the petty bourgeois ideology, isn't it? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's upward social mobility rather than building working class power. It's about like everyone should just is, should instead become middle class, which again isn't and one of the ways in which he tried to expand social mobility was to massively expand higher access to higher education. Mm-hmm. You know, ma- the massification of higher education and so, you know, obviously if you're cynic you could say well this is done to massage unemployment figures because people are in uh, people are in university and stuff but it was this idea that you know you go to university you become middle class you know you get the mm. the fruits of a middle class education but if we look at like the class structure now the massification of higher education that started under blair is one of the biggest complicating factors in understanding the contemporary class structure because obviously Ed, higher education has been massively expanded, as, as well as commercialised. So it is a full profit industry. But you know, obviously, people no longer are guaranteed an income or the spoils of education uh, higher education materially in the in the way they were in previous generations. So you now this is why you have, as I said, like the emergent service class, and this is why you have people with like a lot of cultural and educational capital, but very little social and material capital. So you know, a lot of graduates with very little very little money very little employment prospects but in terms of how that's impacted on the contem- contemporary class structure i do think it's created this really especially the massification of higher education has really created this confused uh, this really confused picture because you know how people are understandably confused what class am i you know what class are these mm. people now who are working in coffee shops with masters degrees but can't ever own their own house and st- mm. stuff like that you know blairism has left a very confusing legacy i think
1: no, I agree. I, I think the expansion of higher education was actually pretty laudable. I mean, obviously, tuition fees is a huge debate, but like my parents didn't earn enough for me to get charged tuition fees. Mm. Um, so that was like it, it honestly didn't as a as a working class student, it didn't make a great deal of difference to me. Although at the time, tuition fees were I think they were like three grand, yeah, not not the, the thousands and thousands that they are now. I think if I was in the same place today as I was, like when I w- went to university, it would be very off put in to start life with that amount of debt. So yeah. it's a nuanced debate. But like I, I certainly and I'm I'm from that particular like fraction of the working class that was the first one in my family to go to university. Obviously everyone was really proud of me. Like so there, there's a lot of I guess like political sentiment and, and romanticism kind of wrapped up yeah. in my journey through higher education. But yeah. sometimes I think should I just have like stayed at home, got a job <laughs> got a job in Woolworths or something, you know? I mean I, I obviously not have done that because there's other sort of horizon broadening reasons to go to university but yeah like you were saying it does it's it's confusing to to go back to that kind of environment and there are you know people i went to school with who now own their own homes um run two cars go on holiday twice a year that kind of thing it's like what what class what class are we both now you know given we started from the same class fraction
0: i personally think one of the reasons that the petty bourgeoisie have been demonized and like I wanted to sort of lay down a marker that I don't want this podcast to be like a ha ha, ha they're the backbone of fascism all <laughs> the right wing because that's like emphatically not going to be the conclusion mm. of my book and it's not going to be the conclusion of the podcast but I do think one of the reasons that they are or the aesthetics of the petty bourgeoisie and that sort of aspirational home you know the home ownership stuff is demonized is because and if I'm being honest, this is how I felt in my darkest moments is that because there is a section of people who are probably the academic kids in school who are funneled into a university, you know, to go to university mm. in a way that's often quite scary. And you're leaving your mates behind. And then you go to university and, you know, you promise like this, this and this. And you end up having this like schizoid relationship where you don't know what, mm. you don't belong anywhere. I think there's going to be thousands and thousands of people across the UK and hopefully listen to this podcast who've had the same experience them, and then You come back to your small regional town after university with with no prospects and you find your friends who left school at 16 materially in a far far better position than you and I think like a lot of people resent that and I think that should be resisted you know there's a lot of people that almost I should be the one who is like successful I was in the top set in school not fair that I've like when I finished my when I was doing my PhD and I moved back to both call you know I was obviously I was knocking around with my friends who didn't go to uni and who were doing like extremely well for themselves as like tradesmen or whatever and I was just viewed as almost this comical I still am in some ways this comical figure of like absolute pity I remember like working in the bar girls I worked with were sort of looking at me and they were just like why haven't you got a wife like (laughs) like what you know I like why haven't you got a car and it was like it was genuinely like they could not believe that there was someone like who was thirty that didn't have these like material belongings, but also had like no prospect of having them at all. Mm-hmm. And I think like one of the drivers for this pod, I think one of the reasons that people are interested in, in it is because is like there has been not just through Blair's and Thatcher's, and there has been you know a lot of people have become proletarianized and have to live preca- you know precarious existences. People who would previously be part of let's say this I don't know the established middle class, or maybe as part of the more bourgeois fractions of the petty bourgeoisie and yet everything's become a, a lot more complex now i think for emergent service workers like myself and possibly yourself there's occasionally like you can there's a sense of like class classed resentment going on when people talk about the petty bourgeoisie people making fun of like their um films and music people watch and stuff like that or making fun of people who've got like new build houses and it's like mm-hmm. what a sad, you know like almost like what a sad little life whereas uh that's that's like the life that i I aspire to and I think a lot of people aspire to you know it's it's interesting isn't it uh, everything's completely changed I think Blairism has certainly contributed to the creation of these new class fractions and if you combine that with the reduction of class to purely a set of aesthetic and consumption practices doing the Blair era this stuff makes even less sense you know yeah um, because you know you end up with these situations about like in The Guardian, talking about you know, a working class. If you've got a working class landlord putting up a middle class tenant, that's the logical end point of the, the reduction of class to a set of consumption practices, which was sort of started mm-hmm. by Blairism, I think.
1: As, as well as the, the the absurdity of just measuring class by aesthetic signifiers, Um People seem to be reaching for a way to define class that isn't what's your relationship to the means of production. Mm. Um, So they've got... (laughs) Yeah, do you participate in like Fiat 500 Twitter or whatever? Or there's like, do do you have a working class grandparent? Yeah, exactly. That means particularly for like someone who's who's third generation down from that, that means nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely nothing.
0: I should clarify as well. The reason we want to talk about class and understand like what class people belong to is not just to describe it. It's because we mm-hmm. want to build like socialist Germany and socialist strategy and sort of work yeah. work out right. Well, what are the commonalities and what are the points in which we can form alliances between fractions of like the, the petty bourgeoisie and and the mm-hmm. proletariat and also to work out what are the regressive influences on the proletariat and the petty bourgeoisie that, that have come from pop culture the idea is basically to how to overcome them by first understanding them, I think. And, and I think that's often lost. Yeah. We're talking about class. It's just become a set of like, it's just name calling between different class fractions. And that's the point of it is to yeah. not, it's, it's not to divide people further, but is to work out how we can collaborate.
1: Yeah. I think the, yeah, it's, it's important to, and this, this, this will, this gets completely lost in like Twitter discourse over what kind of cheese your parents bought, et cetera, et cetera, when you were a kid. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, what's the purpose of all this? It's to work out some commonalities and some material in- interests so that people can then decide what policies will fit their material interests. Sim- simple as that.
0: The other thing that is, is, is important is like, I'm not going to say that all everyone in the left does this. Um, you're not going to get anywhere by sort of dismissing that aspiration for nice things, for mm. you know, security, for like a little house and a little bit of land, because those things, the need for security is driven in the first place by precarious exists but obviously who doesn't want those things we mm. live in an age of abundance te- you know technologically we are in um, a period where it's possible to say that like you don't have to keep looking back and saying this is what we need to go back to you know we need to go mm. back to this like grimy black and white thing community where everyone looked out for one another mm. uh, and we've lived in like you know these very cramped uh, conditions which produce solidarity which is true but on the you, can, you know you can also hopefully build like a socialist strategy which says like not actually everyone is allowed to have these things mm-hmm. they're not going to stop people coming together and having a sense of community
1: is it bevan's quote well, nothing yeah, is too good some, for some, working
0: yeah, classes yeah, yeah exactly yeah it's almost like the anti-blairism you know, if you want to be building working class power the social mobility is bad you don't want like individual people just moving out of mm-hmm. your class moving out of the community you want the entire class to to take yeah, power, exactly. basically right Really? I think we've covered everything. Uh, All right. And I think it's, uh, as I said, um, Clampdown is a really indispensable book if you want to understand social class and its intersection with gender and the role of pop culture in reproducing class. And it's so important in understanding almost why the British political and media class uh, obfuscates the reality of class. You know, I think that's a really, it's a really important intervention. You've got a new book coming out. I uh-huh. have. Do you want to briefly plug in? It?
1: Uh, it's coming out with repeater. It's
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, okay.
1: been uh, been co-written with matthew brown who's the leader of uh, preston city council and it's uh, it's called paint your town red how preston took back control and your town can too so it's all about how preston city council have looked after right. sort of 10 years of austerity um have looked at new models of um generating wealth locally through things like community asset transfers encouraging the growth of co-ops um and how this ethos um, community wealth building ethos is happening uh, in other places around the country and beyond
0: fantastic well you know hopefully we'll we'll, we'll do another podcast on that on my on my other podcast tech station radio which you should uh, all listen to as well that's that sounds fantastic thanks so much for coming on uh, i should also um you know you do have your own podcast coming out on repeat the radio yep. as well i
1: do yeah still still in the works but it's basically going to cover well there's two one's going to cover wales uh both like obvious mm-hmm. Welsh stuff and obscure Welsh stuff. Yeah. Uh, from like the Miners Next Step to Max Boyce. And the other one um is a podcast I'm doing with Ali Davis, which is all about uh gender, politics and culture, how they all how they all intersect.
0: Sounds brilliant. Yeah. No, so yeah, definitely tune into those. Um like I said, thanks everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to you know repeat the radio so you can listen to content like this every fortnight. And yeah, chat to all next.